The Boats of the Glen Carrig. Being an account of their adventures in the strange places of the earth, after the foundering of the good ship Glen Carrig, through striking upon a hidden rock in the unknown seas to the southward, as told by John Winterstraw, gentleman, to his son James Winterstraw in the year 1757, and by him committed very properly and legibly to manuscript. Chapter 5 The Great Storm Now, as I have said, we came at last in safety to the open sea, and so for a time had some degree of peace, though it was long ere we threw off all of the terror which the land of lonesomeness had cast over our hearts. And one more matter there is regarding that land, which my memory recalls. It will be remembered that George found certain wrappers upon which there was writing. Now, in the haste of our leaving, he had given no thought to take them with him, yet a portion of one he found within the side pocket of his jacket, and it ran somewhat thus. But I hear my lover's voice wailing in the night, and I go to find him, for my loneliness is not to be borne. May God have mercy upon me. And that was all. For a day and a night we stood out from the land towards the north, having a steady breeze to which we set our lug sails, and so made very good way, the sea being quiet, though with a slow, lumbering swell from the southward. It was on the morning of the second day of our escape that we met with the beginnings of our adventure into the silent sea, the which I am about to make as clear as I am able. The night had been quiet, and the breeze steady until near on to the dawn, when the wind slacked away to nothing, and we lay there waiting, perchance the sun should bring the breeze with it, and this it did, but no such wind as we did desire, for when the morning came upon us we discovered all that part of the sky to be full of a fiery redness which presently spread away down to the south, so that an entire quarter of the heavens was as it seemed to us, a mighty arc of blood-colored fire. Now at the sight of these omens, the boatswain gave orders to prepare the boats for the storm which we had reason to expect, looking for it in the south, for it was from that direction that the swell came rolling upon us. With this intent, we roused out so much heavy canvas as the boats contained, for we had gotten a bolt and a half from the hulk in the creek. Also, the boat covers which we could lash down to the brass studs under the gunwales of the boats. Then, in each boat, we mounted the whaleback, which had been stowed along the tops of the thwarts, also its supports, lashing the same to the thwarts below the knees. Then we laid two lengths of the stout canvas, the full length of the boat, over the whaleback, overlapping and nailing them to the same so that they sloped away down over the gunwales upon each side, as though they had formed a roof to us. Here, whilst some stretched the canvas, nailing its lower edges to the gunwales, others were employed in lashing together the oars and the mast, and to this bundle they secured a considerable length of new three-and-a-half-inch hemp rope, which we had brought away from the hulk along with the canvas. This rope was then passed over the bows and in through the painter ring, 
and thence to the forward thwarts, where it was made fast, and we gave attention to parcel it with odd strips of canvas against danger of chafe. And the same was done in both of the boats, for we could not put our trust in the painters, besides which they had not sufficient length to secure safe and easy riding. Now by this time we had the canvas nailed down to the gunwales around our boat, after which we spread the boat cover over it, lacing it down to the brass studs beneath the gunwale. And so we had all the boats covered in, save a place in the stern where a man might stand to wield the steering oar, for the boats were double-bowed. And in each boat we made the same preparation, lashing all movable articles and preparing to meet so great a storm as might well fill the heart with terror. For the sky cried out to us that it would be no light wind, and further the great swell from the south grew more huge with every hour that passed though as yet it was without virulence, being slow and oily and black against the redness of the sky. Presently we were ready, and had cast over the bundle of oars and the mast, which was to serve as our sea anchor, and so we lay waiting. It was at this time that the bosun called over to Josh certain advice with regard to that which lay before us. And after that, the two of them sculled the boats a little apart, for there might be a danger of their being dashed together by the first violence of the storm. And so came a time of waiting, with Josh and the bosun, each of them at the steering oars, and the rest of us stowed away under the coverings. From where I crouched near the bosun, I had sight of Josh away upon our port side, he was standing up, black as a shape of night against the mighty redness, when the boats came to the foamless crowns of the swells, and then gone from sight in the hollows between. Now midday had come and gone, and we had made shift to eat so good a meal as our appetites would allow, for we had no knowledge how long it might be ere we should have chance of another, if, indeed, we had ever need to think more of such. And then, in the middle part of the afternoon, we heard the first cryings of the storm, a far distant moaning, rising and falling most solemnly. Presently, all the southern part of the horizon so high up, maybe as from seven to ten degrees, was blotted out by a great black wall of cloud, over which the red glare came down upon the great swells as though from the light of some vast and unseen fire. It was about this time I observed that the sun had the appearance of a great full moon, being pale and clearly defined, and seeming to have no warmth nor brilliancy. And this, as may be imagined, seemed most strange to us, the more so because of the redness in the south and east. And all this while the swells increased most prodigiously, though without making broken water. Yet they informed us that we had done well to take so much precaution, for surely they were raised by a very great storm. A little before evening the moaning came again, and then a space of silence, after which there rose a very sudden bellowing as of wild beasts, and then once more the silence. About this time the bosun making no objection I raised my head above the cover until I was in a standing position, for until now I had taken no more than occasional peeps, 
and I was very glad of the chance to stretch my limbs, for I had grown mightily cramped. Having stirred the sluggishness of my blood, I sat me down again, but in such position that I could see every part of the horizon without difficulty. Ahead of us, that is, to the south, I saw now that the great wall of cloud had risen some further degrees, and there was something less of the redness, though indeed what there was left of it was sufficiently terrifying, for it appeared to crest the black cloud like red foam, seeming, it might be, as though a mighty sea made ready to break over the world. Towards the west, the sun was sinking behind a curious red-tinted haze, which gave it the appearance of a dull red disk. To the north, seeming very high in the sky, were some flecks of cloud lying motionless, and of a very pretty rose color. And here I may remark that all the sea to the north of us appeared as a very ocean of dull red fire, though, as might be expected, the swells coming up from the south against the light were so many exceeding great hills of blackness. It was just after I had made these observations that we heard again the distant roaring of the storm, and I know not how to convey the exceeding terror of that sound. It was as though some mighty beast growled far down towards the south, and it seemed to make very clear to me that we were but two small craft in a very lonesome place. Then, even while the roaring lasted, I saw a sudden light flare up, as it were from the edge of the southern horizon. It had somewhat the appearance of lightning, yet vanished not immediately, as is the want of lightning, and more, it had not been my experience to witness such spring up from out of the sea, but rather down from the heavens. Yet I have little doubt but that it was a form of lightning, for it came many times after this, so that I had chance to observe it minutely, and frequently, as I watched, the storm would shout at us in a most fearsome manner. Then, when the sun was low upon the horizon, there came to our ears a very shrill, screaming noise, most penetrating and distressing, and immediately afterwards the boatswain shouted out something in a hoarse voice, and commenced to sway furiously upon the steering oar. I saw his stare fixed upon a point a little on our larboard bow, and perceived that, in that direction, the sea was all blown up into vast clouds of dust-like froth, and I knew that the storm was upon us. Immediately afterwards, a cold blast struck us, but we suffered no harm, for the boatswain had gotten the boat bows on by this. The wind passed us, and there was an instant of calm, and now all the air above us was full of a continuous roaring, so very loud and intense that I was like to be deafened. To windward, I perceived an enormous wall of spray bearing down upon us, and I heard again the shrill screaming pierce through the roaring. Then the boatswain whipped in his oar under the cover, and reaching forward, drew the canvas aft so that it covered the entire boat, and he held it down against the gunwale upon the starboard side, shouting in my ear to do likewise upon the larboard. Now, had it not been for this forethought on the part of the boatswain, we had been all dead men, and this may be the better believed 
when I explained that we felt the water falling upon the stout canvas overhead, tons and tons, though so beaten to froth as to lack solidity to sink or crush us. I have said felt, for I would make it so clear as may be here once and for all that so intense was the roaring and screaming of the elements, there could be no sound have penetrated to us. No, not the pealing of mighty thunders. And so, for the space of maybe a full minute, the boat quivered and shook most vilely, so that she seemed like to have been shaken in pieces, and from a dozen places between the gunwale and the covering canvas, the water spurted in upon us. And here, one other thing I would make mention of. During that minute, the boat had ceased to rise and fall upon the great swell, and whether this was because the sea was flattened by the first rush of the wind, or that the excess of the storm held her steady, I am unable to tell, and can put down only that which we felt. Now, in a little, the first fury of the blast being spent, the boat began to sway from side to side as though the wind blew now upon the one beam and now upon the other, and several times we were stricken heavily with the blows of solid water. But presently this ceased, and we returned once again to the rise and fall of the swell, only that now we received a cruel jerk every time that the boat came upon the top of a sea, and so a while passed. Towards midnight, as I should judge, there came some mighty flames of lightning, so bright that they lit up the boat through the double covering of canvas. Yet no man of us heard aught of the thunder, for the roaring of the storm made all else a silence. And so to the dawn, after which, finding that we were still, by the mercy of God, possessed of our lives, we made shift to eat and drink, after which we slept. Now being extremely wearied by the stress of the past night, I slumbered through many hours of the storm, waking at some time between noon and evening. Overhead, as I lay looking upwards, the canvas showed of a dull leadenish color, blackened completely at whiles by the dash of spray and water. And so, presently, having eaten again, and feeling that all things lay in the hands of the Almighty, I came once more upon sleep. Twice through the following night was I wakened by the boat being hurled upon her beam ends by the blows of the sea. But she righted easily and took scarce any water, the canvas proving a very roof of safety, and so the morning came again. Being now rested, I crawled after to where the bosun lay, and the noise of the storm lulling odd instants shouted in his ear to know whether the wind was easing at whiles. To this he nodded, whereat I felt a most joyful sense of hope pulse through me, and ate such food as could be gotten with a very good relish. In the afternoon, the sun broke out suddenly, lighting up the boat most gloomily through the wet canvas. Yet a very welcome light it was, and bred in us a hope that the storm was near to breaking. In a little, the sun disappeared, but presently, it coming again, the bosun beckoned to me to assist him, and we removed such temporary nails as we had used to fasten down the after part of the canvas, and pushed back the covering a space sufficient to allow our heads to go through into the daylight.
On looking out, I discovered the air to be full of spray, beaten as fine as dust. And then, before I could note aught else, a little gout of water took me in the face with such force as to deprive me of breath, so that I had to descend beneath the canvas for a little while. So soon as I was recovered, I thrust forth my head again, and now I had some sight of the terrors around us. As each huge sea came towards us, the boat shot up to meet it, right up to its very crest, and there, for the space of some instants, we would seem to be swamped in a very ocean of foam, boiling up on each side of the boat to the height of many feet. Then, the sea passing from under us, we would go swooping dizzily down the great black, froth-splotched back of the wave until the oncoming sea caught us up most mightily. Odd whiles, the crest of a sea would hurl forward before we had reached the top, and though the boat shot upward like a veritable feather, yet the water would swirl right over us and we would have to draw in our heads most suddenly. In such cases, the wind flapping the cover down so soon as our hands were removed. And, apart from the way in which the boat met the seas, there was a very sense of terror in the air. The continuous roaring and howling of the storm, the screaming of the foam, as the frothy summits of the briny mountains hurled past us, and the wind that tore the breath out of our weak human throats, are things scarce to be conceived. Presently we drew in our heads, the sun having vanished again, and nailed down the canvas once more, and so prepared for the night. From here on until the morning, I have very little knowledge of any happenings, for I slept much of the time, and for the rest there was little to know, cooped up beneath the cover. Nothing save the interminable thundering swoop of the boat downwards, and then the halt and upward hurl, the occasional plunges and surges to larboard or starboard, occasioned, I can only suppose, by the indiscriminate might of the seas. I would make mention here how that I had little thought all this while for the peril of the other boat, and indeed I was so very full of our own that it is no matter at which to wonder. However, as it proved, and as this is a most suitable place in which to tell it, the boat that held Josh and the rest of the crew came through the storm with safety, though it was not until many years afterwards that I had the good fortune to hear from Josh himself how that, after the storm, they were picked up by a homeward-bound vessel and landed in the port of London. But now, to our own happenings. Chapter 6. The Weed-Choked Sea It was some little while before midday that we grew conscious that the sea had become very much less violent, and this despite the wind roaring with scarce abated noise. And presently, everything about the boat, saving the wind, having grown indubitably calmer, and no great water breaking over the canvas, the bosun beckoned me again to assist him lift the after part of the cover. This we did, and put forth our heads to inquire the reason of the unexpected quietness of the sea, not knowing but that we had come suddenly under the lee of some unknown land. 
yet for a space we could see nothing beyond the surrounding billows, for the sea was still very furious, though no matter to cause us concern, after that through which we had already come. Presently, however, the boatswain raising himself saw something, and bending cried in my ear that there was a low bank which broke the force of the sea, but he was full of wonder to know how that we had passed it without shipwreck. And whilst he was still pondering the matter, I raised myself and took a look on all sides of us, and so I discovered that there lay another great bank upon our larboard side, and this I pointed out to him. Immediately afterwards, we came upon a great mass of seaweed swung up on the crest of a sea, and presently another. And so we drifted on, and the seas grew less with astonishing rapidity, so that in a little we stripped off the cover so far as the midship thwart, for the rest of the men were sorely in need of fresh air, after so long a time below the canvas covering. It was after we had eaten that one of them made out that there was another low bank astern upon which we were drifting. At that, the boatswain stood up and made an examination of it, being much exercised in his mind to know how we might come clear of it with safety. Presently, however, we had come so near to it that we discovered it to be composed of seaweed, and so we let the boat drive upon it, making no doubt but that the other banks which we had seen were of a similar nature. In a little we had driven in among the weed, yet, though our speed was greatly slowed, we made some progress, and so in time came out upon the other side, and now we found the sea to be near quiet, so that we hauled in our sea anchor, which had collected a great mass of weed about it, and removed the whale back and canvas coverings, after which we stepped the mast and set a tiny storm foresail upon the boat, for we wished to have her under control, and could set no more than this because of the violence of the breeze. Thus we drove on before the wind, the boatswain steering, and avoiding all such banks as showed ahead, and ever the sea grew calmer. Then, when it was near on to evening, we discovered a huge stretch of the weed that seemed to block all the sea ahead, and at that we hauled down the foresail and took to our oars and began to pull broadside onto it towards the west. Yet so strong was the breeze that we were being driven down rapidly upon it. And then, just before sunset, we opened out the end of it and drew in our oars, very thankful to set the little foresail and run off again before the wind. And so presently the night came down upon us, and the boatswain made us take turn and turn about to keep a lookout, for the boat was going some knots through the water, and we were among strange seas. But he took no sleep all that night, keeping always to the steering oar. I have memory during my time of watching of passing odd floating masses, which I make no doubt were weed, and once we drove right atop of one, but we drew clear without much trouble. And all the while, through the dark to starboard, I could make out the dim outline of that enormous weed extent lying low upon the sea, and seeming without end. 
and so presently my time to watch being at an end, I returned to my slumber, and when next I waked, it was morning. Now the morning discovered to me that there was no end to the weed upon our starboard side, for it stretched away into the distance ahead of us so far as we could see, while all about us the sea was full of floating masses of the stuff, and then suddenly one of the men cried out that there was a vessel in among the weed. At that, as may be imagined, we were very greatly excited, and stood upon the thwarts that we might get better view of her. Thus I saw her a great way in from the edge of the weed, and I noted that her foremast was gone near to the deck, and she had no main topmast, though, strangely enough, her mizzen stood unharmed, and beyond this I could make out but little because of the distance. Though the sun, which was upon our larboard side, gave me some sight of her hull, but not much, because of the weed in which she was deeply embedded. Yet it seemed to me that her sides were very weather-worn, and in one place some glistering brown object, which may have been a fungus, caught the rays of the sun, sending off a wet sheen. There we stood, all of us, upon the thwarts, staring and exchanging opinions, and were like to have overset the boat, but that the boatswain ordered us down. And after this we made our breakfast, and had much discussion regarding the stranger, as we ate. Later, towards midday, we were able to set our mizzen, for the storm had greatly modified. And so, presently, we hauled away to the west, to escape a great bank of the weed, which ran out from the main body. Upon rounding this, we let the boat off again, and set the main lug, and thus made very good speed before the wind. Yet though we ran all that afternoon parallel with the weed to starboard, we came not to its end. And three separate times we saw the hulks of rotting vessels, some of them having the appearance of a previous age, so ancient did they seem. Now, towards evening, the wind dropped to a very little breeze, so that we made but slow way, and thus we had better chance to study the weed. And now we saw that it was full of crabs, though for the most part so very minute as to escape the casual glance. Yet they were not all small, for in a little while I discovered a swaying among the weed a little way in from the edge, and immediately I saw the mandible of a very great crab stir amid the weed. At that, hoping to obtain it for food, I pointed it out to the bosun, suggesting that we should try and capture it. And so, there being by now scarce any wind, he bade us get out a couple of the oars and back the boat up to the weed. This we did, after which he made fast a piece of salt meat to a bit of spun yarn, and bent this on to the boat hook. Then he made a running bowline and slipped the loop on to the shaft of the boat hook, after which he held out the boat hook, after the fashion of a fishing rod, over the place where I had seen the crab. Almost immediately there swept up an enormous claw and grasped the meat, and at that the bosun cried out to me to take an oar and slide the bowline along the boat hook so that it should fall over the claw, and this I did, and immediately some of us hauled upon the line, 
tautening it about the great claw. Then the bosun sung out to us to haul the crab aboard, that we had it most securely. Yet on the instant we had reason to wish that we had been less successful, for the creature, feeling the tug of our pull upon it, tossed the weed in all directions, and thus we had full sight of it, and discovered it to be so great a crab as is scarce conceivable, a very monster. And further, it was apparent to us that the brute had no fear of us, nor intention to escape, but rather made to come at us, whereat the bosun, perceiving our danger, cut the line and bade us put weight upon the oars, and so in a moment we were in safety and very determined to have no more meddlings with such creatures. Presently the night came upon us, and the wind remaining low, there was everywhere about us a great stillness, most solemn after the continuous roaring of the storm which had beset us in the previous days. Yet now and again a little wind would rise and blow across the sea, and where it met the weed there would come a low, damp rustling, so that I could hear the passage of it for no little time after the calm had come once more all about us. Now it is a strange thing that I, who had slept amid the noise of the past days, should find sleeplessness amid so much calm, yet so it was, and presently I took the steering oar, proposing that the rest should sleep, and to this the bosun agreed, first warning me, however, most particularly to have care that I kept the boat off the weed, for we had still a little way on us, and further to call him should anything unforeseen occur. And after that, almost immediately he fell asleep, as indeed did most of the men. From the time that I relieved the bosun until midnight, I sat upon the gunwale of the boat with the steering oar under my arm, and watched and listened, most full of a sense of the strangeness of the seas into which we had come. It is true that I had heard tell of seas choked up with weed, seas that were full of stagnation, having no tides, but I had not thought to come upon such an one in my wanderings, having indeed set down such tales as being bred of imagination and without reality in fact. Then, a little before the dawn, and when the sea was yet full of darkness, I was greatly startled to hear a prodigious splash amid the weed, mayhaps at a distance of some hundred yards from the boat. Then, as I stood full of alertness, and knowing not what the next moment might bring forth, there came to me, across the immense waste of weed, a long, mournful cry, and then again the silence. Yet, though I kept very quiet, there came no further sound and I was about to reseat myself, when, afar off in that strange wilderness, there flashed out a sudden flame of fire. Now upon seeing fire in the midst of so much lonesomeness, I was as one amazed, and could do naught but stare. Then, my judgment returning to me, I stooped and waked the bosun, for it seemed to me that this was a matter for his attention. He, after staring at it for a while, declared that he could see the shape of a vessel's hull beyond the flame, but immediately he was in doubt, as indeed I had been all the while, 
And then, even as we peered, the light vanished, and though we waited for the space of some minutes, watching steadfastly, there came no further sight of that strange illumination. From now until the dawn, the boson remained awake with me, and we talked much upon that which we had seen, yet could come to no satisfactory conclusion, for it seemed impossible to us that a place of so much desolation could contain any living being. And then, just as the dawn was upon us, there loomed up a fresh wonder. The hull of a great vessel, maybe a couple or three score fathoms in, from the edge of the weed. Now the wind was still very light, being no more than an occasional breath, so that we went past her at a drift. Thus the dawn had strengthened sufficiently to give to us a clear sight of the stranger before we had gone more than a little past her. And now I perceived that she lay full broadside to us, and that her three masts were gone close down to the deck. Her side was streaked in places with rust, and in others a green scum overspread her. But it was no more than a glance that I gave at any of those matters, for I had spied something which drew all my attention. Great leathery arms splayed all across her side, some of them crooked inboard over the rail, and then low down, seen just above the weed, the huge, brown, glistening bulk of so great a monster as ever I had conceived. The boatswain saw it in the same instant and cried out in a hoarse whisper that it was a mighty devil fish, and then, even as he spoke, two of the arms flickered up into the cold light of the dawn, as though the creature had been asleep, and we had waked it. At this, the boatswain seized an oar, and I did likewise, and so swiftly as we dared, for fear of making any unneedful noise, we pulled the boat to a safer distance. From there, and until the vessel had become indistinct by reason of the space we put between us, we watched that great creature clutched to the old hull, as it might be a limpet to a rock. Presently, when it was broad day, some of the men began to rouse up, and in a little we broke our fast, which was not displeasing to me, who had spent the night watching. And so through the day we sailed with a very light wind upon our larboard quarter, and all the while we kept the great waste of weed upon our starboard side, and apart from the mainland of the weed, as it were, there were scattered about an uncountable number of weed islets and banks, and there were thin patches of it that appeared scarce above the water, and through these latter we let the boat sail, for they had not sufficient density to impede our progress more than a little. And then, when the day was far spent, we came in sight of another wreck amid the weeds. She lay in from the edge perhaps so much as the half of a mile, and she had all three of her lower masts in, and her lower yards squared, but what took our eyes more than aught else was a great superstructure which had been built upwards from her rails, almost halfway to her main tops, and this, as we were able to perceive, was supported by ropes let down from the yards, but of what material the superstructure was composed I have no knowledge, 
for it was so overgrown with some form of green stuff, as was so much of the hull as showed above the weed, as to defy our guesses. And because of this growth, it was borne upon us that the ship must have been lost to the world a very great age ago. At this suggestion, I grew full of solemn thought, for it seemed to me that we had come upon the cemetery of the ocean. Now, in a little while after we had passed this ancient craft, the night came down upon us, and we prepared for sleep. And because the boat was making some little way through the water, the bosun gave out that each of us should stand our turn at the steering oar, and that he was to be called should any fresh matter transpire. And so we settled down for the night, and owing to my previous sleeplessness, I was full weary, so that I knew nothing until the one whom I was to relieve shook me into wakefulness. So soon as I was fully waked, I perceived that a low moon hung above the horizon and shed a very ghostly light across the great weed world to starboard. For the rest, the night was exceeding quiet, so that no sound came to me in all that ocean, save the rippling of the water upon our bends as the boat forged slowly along. And so I settled down to pass the time ere I should be allowed to sleep. But first I asked the man whom I had relieved how long a time had passed since moonrise, to which he replied that it was no more than the half of an hour, and after that I questioned whether he had seen aught strange amid the weed during his time at the oar. But he had seen nothing, except that once he had fancied a light had shone in the midst of the waste, yet it could have been naught save a humor of the imagination, though apart from this he had heard a strange crying a little after midnight, and twice there had been great splashes among the weed, and after that he fell asleep, being impatient at my questioning. Now it so chanced that my watch had come just before the dawn, for which I was full of thankfulness, being in that frame of mind when the dark breeds strange and unwholesome fancies. Yet, though I was so near to the dawn, I was not to escape free of the eerie influence of that place, for as I sat, running my gaze to and fro over its gray immensity, it came to me that there were strange movements among the weed, and I seemed to see vaguely, as one may see things in dreams, dim white faces peer out at me here and there, yet my common sense assured me that I was but deceived by the uncertain light and the sleep in my eyes. Yet, for all that, it put my nerves on the quiver. A little later, there came to my ears the noise of a very great splash amid the weed. But though I stared with intentness, I could nowhere discern aught as likely to be cause thereof. And then, suddenly, between me and the moon, there drove up from out of that great waste a vast bulk flinging huge masses of weed in all directions. It seemed to be no more than a hundred fathoms distant, and against the moon I saw the outline of it most clearly, a mighty devilfish. Then it had fallen back once more with a prodigious splash, and so the quiet fell again, finding me sore afraid, and no little bewildered that so monstrous a creature could leap 
with such agility. And then, in my fright I had let the boat come near to the edge of the weed, there came a subtle stir opposite to our starboard bow, and something slid down into the water. I swayed upon the oar to turn the boat's head outward, and with the same movement leant forward and sideways to peer, bringing my face near to the boat's rail. In the same instant, I found myself looking down into a white, demonic face, human save that the mouth and nose had greatly the appearance of a beak. The thing was gripping at the side of the boat with two flickering hands, gripping the bare, smooth outer surface in a way that woke in my mind a sudden memory of the great devilfish which had clung to the side of the wreck we had passed in the previous dawn. I saw the face come up towards me, and one misshapen hand fluttered almost to my throat, and there came a sudden hateful reek in my nostrils, foul and abominable. Then I came into possession of my faculties, and drew back with great haste and a wild cry of fear, and then I had the steering oar by the middle, and was smiting downward with the loom over the side of the boat, but the thing was gone from my sight. I remember shouting out to the bosun and to the men to awake, and then the bosun had me by the shoulder, was calling in my ear to know what dire thing had come about. At that I cried out that I did not know, and presently, being somewhat calmer, I told them of the thing that I had seen, but even as I told of it, there seemed to be no truth in it, so that they were all at a loss to know whether I had fallen asleep or that I had indeed seen a devil. And presently, the dawn was upon us. Chapter 7 The Island in the Weed It was as we were all discussing the matter of the devil face that had peered up at me out of the water, that Job, the ordinary seaman, discovered the island in the light of the growing dawn, and seeing it sprang to his feet with so loud a cry that we were like for the moment to have thought that he had seen a second demon. Yet when we made discovery of that which he had already perceived, we checked our blame at his sudden shout. For the sight of land, after so much desolation, made us very warm in our hearts. Now at first the island seemed but a very small matter, for we did not know at that time that we viewed it from its end, yet despite this we took to our oars and rowed with all haste towards it, and so coming nearer were able to see that it had a greater size than we had imagined. Presently, having cleared the end of it, and keeping to that side which was further from the great mass of the weed continent, we opened out a bay that curved inward to a sandy beach, most seductive to our tired eyes. Here, for the space of a minute, we paused to survey the prospect, and I saw that the island was of a very strange shape, having a great hump of black rock at either end, and dipping down into a steep valley between them. In this valley there seemed to be a deal of a strange vegetation that had the appearance of mighty toadstools, and down near the beach there was a thick grove of a kind of very tall reed, 
and these we discovered afterwards to be exceeding tough and light, having something of the qualities of bamboo. Regarding the beach, it might have been most reasonably supposed that it would be very thick with the driftweed, but this was not so, at least not at that time. Though a projecting horn of the black rock which ran out into the sea from the upper end of the island was thick with it. And now, the boatswain having assured himself that there was no appearance of any danger, we bent to the oars, and presently had the boat aground upon the beach, and here, finding it convenient, we made our breakfast. During this meal, the boatswain discussed with us the most proper thing to do, and it was decided to push the boat off from the shore, leaving Job in her, whilst the remainder of us made some exploration of the island. And so, having made an end of eating, we proceeded as we had determined, leaving Job in the boat, ready to scull ashore for us if we were pursued by any savage creature, while the rest of us made our way towards the nearer hump, from which, as it stood some hundred feet above the sea, we hoped to get a very good idea of the remainder of the island. First, however, the boatswain handed out to us the two cutlasses and the cut and thrust, the other two cutlasses being in Josh's boat, and taking one himself, he passed me the cut and thrust and gave the other cutlass to the biggest of the men. Then he bade the others keep their sheath knives handy and was proceeding to lead the way when one of them called out to us to wait a moment and with that ran quickly to the clump of reeds. Here he took one with both his hands and bent upon it, but it would not break, so that he had to notch it about with his knife, and thus, after some effort, he had it clear. After this, he cut off the upper part, which was too thin and lissom for his purpose, and then thrust the handle of his knife into the end of the portion which he had retained, and in this wise he had a most serviceable lance or spear for the reeds were very strong and hollow after the fashion of bamboo, and when he had bound some yarn about the end into which he had thrust his knife, so as to prevent it splitting, it was a fit enough weapon for any man. Now the boatswain, perceiving the happiness of the fellow's idea, bade the rest make to themselves similar weapons, and while they were busy thus, he commended the man very warmly. And so, in a little, being now most comfortably armed, we made inland toward the nearer Black Hill, in very good spirits. Presently we were come to the rock which formed the hill, and found that it came up out of the sand with great abruptness, so that we could not climb it on the seaward side. At that the boatswain led us round a space towards the side where lay the valley, and here there was underfoot neither sand nor rock but ground of strange and spongy texture. And then suddenly, rounding a jutting spur of the rock, we came upon the first of the vegetation, an incredible mushroom. Nay, I should say toadstool, for it had no healthy look about it, and gave out a heavy, moldy odor. And now we perceive that the valley was filled with them, all that is, save a great circular patch, where nothing appeared to be growing, though we were not yet at a sufficient height to ascertain the reason of this. 
Presently, we came to a place where the rock was split by a great fissure running up to the top and showing many ledges and convenient shelves upon which we might obtain hold and footing. And so we set to about climbing, helping one another so far as we had ability, until in about the space of ten minutes we reached the top, and from thence had a very fine view. We perceived now that there was a beach upon that side of the island, which was opposed to the weed, though unlike that upon which we had landed, it was greatly choked with weed which had drifted ashore. After this, I gave notice to see what space of water lay between the island and the edge of the great weed continent, and guessed it to be no more than maybe some ninety yards, at which I fell to wishing that it had been greater, for I was grown much in awe of the weed and the strange things which I conceived it to contain. Abruptly, the boatswain clapped me upon the shoulder and pointed to some object that lay out in the weed at a distance of not much less than the half of a mile from where we stood. Now, at first, I could not conceive what manner of thing it was at which I stared, until the boatswain, remarking my bewilderment, informed me that it was a vessel all covered in, no doubt as a protection against the devilfish and other strange creatures in the weed. And now I began to trace the hull of her amid all that hideous growth, but of her masts I could discern nothing, and I doubted not but that they had been carried away by some storm ere she was caught by the weed. And then the thought came to me of the end of those who had built up that protection against the horrors which the weed world held hidden amid its slime. Presently I turned my gaze once more upon the island, which was very plain to see from where we stood. I conceived now that I could see so much of it that its length would be near to half a mile, though its breadth was something under 400 yards. Thus it was very long in proportion to its width. In the middle part it had less breadth than at the ends, being perhaps 300 yards at its narrowest and a hundred yards wider at its broadest. Upon both sides of the island, as I have made already a mention, there was a beach, though this extended no great distance along the shore, the remainder being composed of the black rock of which the hills were formed. And now, having a closer regard to the beach upon the weed side of the island, I discovered amid the rack that had been cast ashore a portion of the lower mast and top mast of some great ship, with rigging attached, but the yards were all gone. This find I pointed out to the boatswain, remarking that it might prove of use for firewood, but he smiled at me, telling me that the driest weed would make a very abundant fire, and this without going to the labor of cutting the mast into suitable logs. And now he in turn called my attention to the place where the huge fungi had come to a stop in their growing. And I saw that in the center of the valley there was a great circular opening in the earth, like to the mouth of a prodigious pit, and it appeared to be filled too within a few feet of the mouth with water, over which spread a brown and horrid scum. Now, as may be supposed, I stared with some intentness at this, for it had the look of having been made with labor, being very symmetrical, yet I could not conceive but that I was deluded by the distance, 
and that it would have been a rougher appearance when viewed from a nearer standpoint. From contemplating this, I looked down upon the little bay in which our boat floated. Job was sitting in the stern, sculling gently with the steering oar and watching us. At that, I waved my hand to him in friendly fashion, and he waved back. And then, even as I looked, I saw something in the water under the boat, something dark-colored that was all of a move. The boat appeared to be floating over it as over a mass of sunk weed, and then I saw that, whatever it was, it was rising to the surface. At this, a sudden horror came over me, and I clutched the bosun by the arm and pointed, crying out that there was something under the boat. Now the bosun, so soon as he saw the thing, ran forward to the brow of the hill, and, placing his hands to his mouth after the fashion of a trumpet, sang out to the boy to bring the boat to the shore and make fast the painter to a large piece of rock. At the bosun's hail, the lad called out, Ay, ay, and, standing up, gave a sweep with his oar that brought the boat's head round towards the beach. Fortunately for him, he was no more than some thirty yards from the shore at this point, else he had never come to it in this life. For the next moment, the moving brown mass beneath the boat shot out a great tentacle, and the oar was torn out of Job's hands with such power as to throw him right over onto the starboard gunwale of the boat. The oar itself was drawn down out of sight, and for the minute the boat was left untouched. Now the bosun cried out to the boy to take another oar, and get ashore while still he had the chance. And at that we all called out various things, one advising him one thing, and another recommending some other. Yet our advice was vain, for the boy moved not, at which some cried out that he was stunned. I looked now to where the brown thing had been, for the boat had moved a few fathoms from the spot, having got some way upon her before the oar was snatched, and thus I discovered that the monster had disappeared, having, I conceived, sunk again into the depths from which it had risen. Yet it might reappear at any moment, and in that case the boy would be taken before our eyes. At this juncture the boatswain called to us to follow him, and led the way to the great fissure up which we had climbed, and so in a minute we were each of us scrambling down with what haste we could make towards the valley and all the while as I dropped from ledge to ledge, I was full of torment to know whether the monster had returned. The bosun was the first man to reach the bottom of the cleft, and he set off immediately round the base of the rock to the beach, the rest of us following him as we made safe our footing in the valley. I was the third man down, but being light and fleet of foot, I passed the second man and caught up with the bosun just as he came upon the sand. Here I found that the boat was within some five fathoms of the beach, and I could see Job still lying insensible. Of the monster there was no sign. And so matters were, the boat nearly a dozen yards from the shore, and Job lying insensible in her, with somewhere near under her keel, for all that we knew, a great monster, and we helpless upon the beach. Now, I could not imagine how to save the lad, 
and indeed I fear he had been left to destruction, for I had deemed it madness to try to reach the boat by swimming. But for the extraordinary bravery of the boatswain, who without hesitating dashed into the water and swam boldly out to the boat, which by the grace of God he reached without mishap and climbed in over the bows. Immediately he took the painter and hove it to us, bidding us tail onto it and bring the boat to shore without delay, and by this method of gaining the beach he showed wisdom, for in this wise he escaped attracting the attention of the monster by a needful stirring of the water, as he would surely have done had he made use of an oar. Yet despite his care, we hadn't finished with the creature, for just as the boat grounded, I saw the lost steering oar shoot up half its length out of the sea, and immediately there was a mighty splather in the water astern, and the next instant the air seemed full of huge, whirling arms. At that, the boatswain gave one look behind, and seeing the thing upon him, snatched the boy into his arms and sprang over the bows onto the sand. Now, at sight of the devil fish, we had all made for the back of the beach at a run, none troubling even to retain the painter, and because of this we were like to have lost the boat, for the great cuttlefish had its arms all splayed about, seeming to have a mind to drag it down into the deep water from whence it had risen, and it had probably succeeded, but that the boatswain again brought us all to our senses. For, having laid Job out of harm's way, he was the first to seize the painter, which lay trailed upon the sand, and at that we got back our courage and ran to assist him. Now there happened to be convenient a great spike of rock, the same indeed to which the boatswain had bidden Job tie the boat, and to this we ran the painter, taking a couple of turns about it and two half hitches, and now, unless the rope carried away, we had no reason to fear the loss of the boat, though there seemed to us to be a danger of the creatures crushing it. Because of this, and because of a feeling of natural anger against the thing, the boatswain took up from the sand one of the spears which had been cast down when we hauled the boat ashore. With this he went down so far as seemed safe, and prodded the creature in one of its tentacles, the weapon entering easily, at which I was surprised, for I had understood that these monsters were near to invulnerable in all parts, save their eyes. At receiving this stab, the great fish appeared to feel no hurt, for it showed no sign of pain, and at that the boatswain was further emboldened to go nearer, so that he might deliver a more deadly wound. Yet scarce had he taken two steps before the hideous thing was upon him, and but for an agility wonderful in so great a man, he had been destroyed. Yet, spite of so narrow an escape from death, he was not the less determined to wound or destroy the creature, and to this end he dispatched some of us to the grove of reeds to get half a dozen of the strongest, and when we returned with these he bade two of the men lash their spears securely to them, and by this means they had now spears of a length between thirty and forty feet. With these it was possible to attack the devilfish without coming within reach of its tentacles, and now being ready, he took one of the spears telling the biggest of the men to take the other. Then he directed him to aim for the right eye of the huge fish, whilst he would attack the left. 
Now, since the creature had so nearly captured the bosun, it had ceased to tug at the boat and lay silent with its tentacles spread all about it and its great eyes appearing just over the stern so that it presented an appearance of watching our movement, though I doubt if it saw us with any true clearness, for it must have been dazed with the brightness of the sunshine. And now the bosun gave the signal to attack, at which he and the man ran down upon the creature with their lances, as it were, in rest. The bosun's spear took the monster truly in its left eye, but the one wielded by the man was too bendable, and sagged so much that it struck the stern post of the boat, the knife blade snapping off short. Yet it mattered not, for the wound inflicted by the bosun's weapon was so frightful that the giant cuttlefish released the boat and slid back into deep water, churning it into foam and gouting blood. For some minutes we waited to make sure that the monster had indeed gone, and after that we hastened to the boat and drew her up so far as we were able, after which we unloaded the heaviest of her contents and so were able to get her right clear of the water. And for an hour afterwards the sea all about the little beach was stained black and in places red. Chapter 8 The Noises in the Valley now, so soon as we had gotten the boat into safety, the which we did with a most feverish haste, the bosun gave his attention to Job, for the boy had not yet recovered from the blow which the loom of the oar had dealt him beneath the chin when the monster snatched at it. For a while, his attentions produced no effect, but presently, having bathed the lad's face with water from the sea and rubbed rum into his chest over the heart, the youth began to show signs of life, and soon opened his eyes, whereupon the bosun gave him a stiff jorum of the rum, after which he asked him how he seemed in himself. To this, Job replied in a weak voice that he was dizzy and his head and neck ached badly, on hearing which, the bosun bade him keep lying until he had come more to himself. And so we left him in quietness under a little shade of canvas and reeds, for the air was warm and the sand dry, and he was not like to come to any harm there. At a little distance, under the directing of the bosun, we made to prepare dinner, for we were now very hungry, it seeming a great while since we had broken our fast. To this end, the bosun sent two of the men across the island to gather some of the dry seaweed for we intended to cook some of the salt meat, this being the first cooked meal since ending the meat which we had boiled before leaving the ship in the creek. In the meanwhile, and until the return of the men with the fuel, the bosun kept us busied in various ways. Two he sent to cut a bundle of the reeds, and another couple to bring the meat and the iron boiler, the latter being one that we had taken from the old brig. Presently the men returned with the dried seaweed, and very curious stuff it seemed, some of it being in chunks near as thick as a man's body, but exceeding brittle by reason of its dryness. And so in a little we had a very good fire going, which we fed with the seaweed and pieces of the reeds, though we found the latter to be but indifferent fuel, having too much sap and being troublesome to break into convenient size. 
Now when the fire had grown red and hot, the bosun half filled the boiler with seawater in which he placed the meat, and the pan, having a stout lid, he did not scruple to place it in the very heart of the fire, so that soon we had the contents boiling merrily. Having gotten the dinner under way, the bosun set about preparing our camp for the night, which we did by making a rough framework with the reeds, over which we spread the boat's sails and the cover, pegging the canvas down with tough splinters of the reed. When this was completed, we set to and carried there all our stores, after which the bosun took us over to the other side of the island to gather fuel for the night, which we did, each man bearing a great double armful. Now by the time that we had brought over, each of us, two loads of the fuel, we found the meat to be cooked, and so, without more to do, set ourselves down and made a very good meal off it and some biscuits, after which we had each of us a sound tot of rum. Having made an end of eating and drinking, the bosun then went over to where Job lay to inquire how he felt, and found him lying very quiet, though his breathing had a heavy touch about it. However, we could conceive of nothing by which he might be bettered, and so we left him, being more hopeful that nature would bring him to health than any skill of which we were possessed. By this time it was late afternoon, so that the bosun declared we might please ourselves until sunset, deeming that we had earned a very good right to rest. But that from sunset till the dawn we should, he told us, have each of us to take turn and turn about to watch. For though we were no longer upon the water, none might say whether we were out of danger or not, as witness the happening of the morning. Though certainly he apprehended no danger from the devilfish, so long as we kept well away from the water's edge. And so from now until dark most of the men slept. But the bosun spent much of that time in overhauling the boat to see how it might chance to have suffered during the storm, and also whether the struggles of the devilfish had strained it in any way. And indeed, it was speedily evident that the boat would need some attention, for the plank in her bottom next but one to the keel, upon the starboard side, had been burst inwards. This having been done, it would seem, by some rock in the beach hidden just beneath the water's edge, the devilfish having no doubt ground the boat down upon it. Happily, the damage was not great, though it would most certainly have to be carefully repaired before the boat would again be seaworthy. For the rest, there seemed to be no other part needing attention. Now, I had not felt any call to sleep, and so had followed the bosun to the boat, giving him a hand to remove the bottom boards, and finally to slew her bottom a little upwards so that he might examine the leak more closely. When he had made an end with the boat, he went over to the stores and looked closely into their condition and also to see how they were lasting. And after that, he sounded all the water breakers. Having done which, he remarked that it would be well for us if we could discover any fresh water upon the island. By this time, it was getting on towards evening and the bosun went across to look at Job, finding him much as he had been when we visited him after dinner. At that, the bosun asked me to bring across one of the longer of the bottom boards, which I did, and we made use of it as a stretcher to carry the lad into the tent. 
and afterwards we carried all the loose woodwork of the boat into the tent, emptying the lockers of their contents, which included some oakum, a small boat's hatchet, a coil of one and a half inch hemp line, a good saw, an empty colza oil tin, a bag of copper nails, some bolts and washers, two fishing lines, three spare tholes, a three-pronged grain without the shaft, two balls of spun yarn, three hanks of roping twine, a piece of canvas with four roping needles stuck in it, the boat's lamp, a spare plug, and then a roll of light duck for making boat's sails. And so presently the dark came down upon the island, at which the bosun waked the men and bade them throw more fuel onto the fire, which had by that time burned down to a mound of glowing embers much shrouded in ash. After that, one of them part filled the boiler with fresh water, and soon we were occupied most pleasantly upon a supper of cold, boiled salt meat, hard biscuits, and rum mixed with hot water. During supper, the bosun made clear to the men regarding the watches, arranging how they should follow, so that I found I was set down to take my turn from midnight until one o'clock. Then he explained to them about the burst plank in the bottom of the boat, and how that it would have to be put right before we could hope to leave the island, and that after that night we should have to go most strictly with the victuals, for there seemed to be nothing upon the island that we had up till then discovered fit to satisfy our hunger. More than this, if we could find no fresh water, he should have to distill some to make up for that which we had drunk, and this must be done before leaving the island. Now by the time that the bosun had made an end of explaining these matters, we had ceased from eating, and soon after this we made each one of us a comfortable place in the sand within the tent and lay down to sleep. For a while I found myself very wakeful, which may have been because of the warmth of the night, and indeed at last I got up and went out of the tent, conceiving that I might the better find sleep in the open air, and so it proved, for having lain down at the side of the tent a little way from the fire, I fell soon into a deep slumber, which at first was dreamless. Presently, however, I came upon a very strange and unsettling dream, for I dreamed that I had been left alone on the island, and was sitting very desolate upon the very edge of the brown-scummed pit. Then I was aware suddenly that it was very dark and silent, and I began to shiver, for it seemed to me that something which repulsed my whole being had come quietly behind me. At that I tried mightily to turn and look into the shadows among the great fungi that stood all about me, but I had no power to turn, and the thing was coming nearer, though never a sound came to me, and I gave out a scream, or tried to, but my voice made no stir in the rounding quiet. And then something wet and cold touched my face, and slithered down and covered my mouth, and paused there for a vile, breathless moment. It passed onward and fell to my throat, and stayed there. Someone stumbled and felt over my feet, and at that I was suddenly awake. It was the man on watch making a walk round the back of the tent, 
and he had not known of my presence till he fell over my boots. He was somewhat shaken and startled, as might be supposed, but steadied himself on learning that it was no wild creature crouched there in the shadow. And all that time, as I answered his inquiries, I was full of a strange, horrid feeling that something had left me at the moment of my awakening. There was a slight, hateful odor in my nostrils that was not altogether unfamiliar, and then, suddenly, I was aware that my face was damp and that there was a curious sense of tingling at my throat. I put up my hand and felt my face, and the hand when I brought it away was slippery with slime, and at that I put up my other hand and touched my throat, and there it was the same, only, in addition, there was a slight swelled place a little to one side of my windpipe, the sort of place that the bite of a mosquito will make but I had no thought to blame any mosquito. Now the stumbling of the man over me, my awakening, and the discovery that my face and throat were beslimed were but the happenings of a few short instants. And then I was upon my feet, and following him round to the fire, for I had a sense of chilliness and a great desire not to be alone. Having come to the fire, I took some of the water that had been left in the boiler and washed my face and neck, after which I felt more my own man. Then I asked the man to look at my throat, so that he might give me some idea of what manner of place the swelling seemed, and he, lighting a piece of the dry seaweed to act as a torch, made examination of my neck, but could see little, save a number of small ring-like marks red inwardly and white at the edges, and one of them was bleeding slightly. After that, I asked him whether he had seen anything moving round the tent, but he had seen nothing during all the time that he had been on watch, though it was true that he had heard odd noises, but nothing was near at hand. Of the places on my throat he seemed to think but little, suggesting that I had been bitten by some sort of sand fly but at that I shook my head, and told him of my dream, and after that he was anxious to keep near me as I to him, and so the night passed onward until my turn came to watch. For a little while the man whom I had relieved sat beside me, having, I conceived, the kindly intent of keeping me company. But so soon as I perceived this, I entreated him to go and get his sleep assuring him that I had no longer any feeling of fear, such as had been mine upon awakening and discovering the state of my face and throat, at least. And upon this, he consented to leave me, and so in a little while I sat alone beside the fire. For a space I kept very quiet, listening, but no sound came to me out of the surrounding darkness, and so, as though it were a fresh thing, it was borne in upon me how that we were in a very abominable place of lonesomeness and desolation. I grew very solemn. Thus, as I sat, the fire, which had not been replenished for a while, dwindled steadily until it gave but a dullish glow around. And then, in the direction of the valley, I heard suddenly the sound of a dull thud, the noise coming to me through the stillness with a very startling clearness. At that I perceived that I was not doing my duty to the rest, nor to myself, by sitting and allowing the fire to cease from flame. 
immediately reproaching myself, I seized and cast a mass of the dry weed upon the fire, so that a great blaze shot up into the night, and afterwards I glanced quickly to right and to left, holding my cut and thrust very steadily, and most thankful to the Almighty that I had brought no harm to any by reason of my carelessness, which I incline me to believe was that strange inertia which is bred by fear. Then, even as I looked about me, there came to me across the silence of the beach a fresh noise, a continual soft slithering to and fro in the bottom of the valley, as though a multitude of creatures moved stealthily. At this, I threw more fuel upon the fire, and after that I fixed my gaze in the direction of the valley. In the following instant, it seemed to me that I saw a certain thing, as it might be a shadow, move on the outer borders of the firelight. Now the man who had kept watch before me had left his spear stuck upright in the sand, convenient to my grasp, and seeing something moving, I seized the weapon and hurled it with all my strength in the direction. But there came no answering cry to tell that I had struck anything living, and immediately afterwards there fell once more great silence upon the island, being broken only by a far splash out upon the weed. It may be conceived with truth that the above happenings had put a very considerable strain upon my nerves, so that I looked to and fro continually, with ever and anon a quick glance behind me, for it seemed to me that I might expect some demonic creature to rush upon me at any moment. Yet for the space of many minutes, there came to me neither any sight nor sound of any living creature, so that I knew not what to think being near to doubting if I had heard aught beyond the common. And then, even as I made halt upon the threshold of doubt, I was assured that I had not been mistaken, for abruptly I was aware that all the valley was full of rustling, scampering sort of noises, through which there came to me occasional soft thuds, and anon the former slithering sounds. At that, thinking a host of evil things to be upon us, I cried out to the boatswain and the men to awake. Immediately upon my shout, the boatswain rushed out from the tent, the men following and every one with his weapon, save the man who had left his spear in the sand, and that lay now somewhere beyond the light of the fire. Then the boatswain shouted to know what thing had caused me to cry out, but I replied nothing, only held up my hand for quietness, Yet when this was granted, the noises in the valley had already ceased, so that the boatswain turned to me, being in need of some explanation. But I begged him to hark a little longer, which he did, and the sounds recommencing almost immediately, he heard sufficient to know that I had not waked them all without due cause. And then, as we stood each one of us staring into the darkness where lay the valley, I seemed to again see some shadowy thing upon the boundary of the firelight, and in the same instant, one of the men cried out and cast his spear into the darkness, but the boatswain turned upon him with very great anger, for in throwing his weapon the man had left himself without, and thus brought danger to all of us. Yet, as will be remembered, I had done likewise, but a little since. Presently, there coming again a quietness within the valley, 
and none knowing what might be toward, the bosun caught up a mass of the dry weed, and lighting it in the fire, ran with it towards the portion of the beach which lay between us and the valley. Here he cast it upon the sand, singing out to some of the men to bring more weed, so that we might have a fire there, and thus be able to see if anything made to come at us out of the deepness of the hollow. We presently had a very good fire, and by the light of this the two spears were discovered, both of them stuck in the sand, and no more than a yard one from the other, which seemed to me a very strange thing. Now, for a while after the lighting of the second fire, there came no further sound from the direction of the valley. Nothing, indeed, to break the quietness of the island, save the occasional lonely splashes that sounded from time to time out in the vastness of the weed continent. Then, about an hour after I had waked the bosun, one of the men who had been tending the fires came up to him to say that we had come to the end of our supply of weed fuel. At that, the bosun looked very blank, the which did the rest of us, as well we might. Yet there was no help for it, until one of the men bethought him of the remainder of the bundle of reeds which we had cut, and which, burning but poorly, we had discarded for the weed. These were discovered at the back of the tent, and with them we fed the fire that burned between us and the valley. But the other we suffered to die out, for the reeds were not sufficient to support even the one until dawn. At last, and whilst it was still dark, we came to the end of our fuel, and as the fire died down, so did the noises in the valley recommence. And there we stood in the growing dark, each one of us keeping very ready a weapon, and a more ready glance. At times the island would be mightily quiet, and then again the sounds of things crawling in the valley. Yet I think the silences tried our patience more. But at last came the dawn.